Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. This is a conversation with longtime Nickelback manager Brian Coleman. So I was particularly excited about this one because managers are an underrepresented uh, category of this podcast. And obviously the Nickelback story is an interesting one. It's, it f helped further my understanding of Rudder's transition from Indie Darling into like a AAA powerhouse. Um, also, while Brian is there to balance the interests of the band and the interests of the label, all that great stuff. You can really tell in this one that I've um, kind of got my feelers out and trying to articulate new ideas. And I, as, as some people will know, I'm very wordy and very waffly when I'm trying to sort of carve out those new, uh, connect those new nodes within my brain. But uh, I guess one of the qualities of a manager is that they're effective listeners. So I don't think my waffling knocked Brian one bit and he was extremely helpful and insightful. Uh, down that rabbit hole. Anyway, let's jump into it. One, two, fuck shoot up. When I was, looking, when I was doing some of my homework and my research, I was, in, I was interested in what other bands that um, Union were managing at yeah. the time, especially because it was all like very early 2000 stuff. And it all, you must have had, you must have had a right fucking busy two or three years <laughs> at the start of the century. It, yeah, it really was. I, I, I'd be, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to tell you the whole kind of kind of story if you want. Yeah, go on. So, how did you get into management in the first place, then? Yeah. So, uh, how I got into? I was going to college, and I was as I was going to college, I was doing construction to pay bills, and I was working on this guy's house, and I was you know paving the 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 house and the pool and stuff, and Tom Petty kept coming to the guy's house, and Billy Idol, and I was like, why is he coming to this guy's house? And, and so the contractor says, well, he's their manager. I'm like, wow this big old house you know i'm like okay yeah i can do this so i'm gonna do that so um so yeah i started looking into it and started you know interning and figuring my way through um ended up working with uh an agent paul barbaras uh first brought me in and his his office was attached to a management office who used to be an agency as well uh it was called tapco entertainment it was tim heine and Tim Honey to this day is my my partner. So um, I started working with Paul booking, hated booking. Um, <laughs> and I started working with uh, with Tim. I, I came to him one day. I'm like, I found this band. I really want to manage them. And at that time, I was uh, started working at UCLA. And he's like, No, go back to UCLA. I was working at a hospital. I was making good. I was had working my way up. And he's like, Go there. Stop managing. Yeah, you don't need to manage. <laughs> Let the dream he tells the story and he laughs he's like thank god you didn't listen to my advice but um he uh i was like no I'm, i want to manage this band and so this band was called grinch fist they were uh, like a local la uh metal band they used to play with corn and cold chamber like like it was the three bands they would go around and play all over la and they did really well uh, and then then they ended up breaking up and i found this band called jack turned into this band oleander uh, right. And then they were like, in the, there's a few other bands in there too, longer story, but, but Oleander was like the one, this is like five years in the making, but five years later, you know, they got started getting some radio play, got some attention, and we got them a deal with Republic Records, ended up having several number ones, and as their success at radio uh, was building, uh, I had this band Saliva, who I was shopping around, and Ron Berman was like, hey, you know, we just signed this band, Ron Berman at Roadrunner, I should say. You know, he, he said, hey, you know, we signed this band and we want to kind of break him how you broke Oleander with all the, with your rock success. And I said, Ron, you're a metal label. You can't break 
rock radio. I'm sorry, but you know, as much as I'm a fan of all the bands that were there, like I, I don't see it happening. He's like, no, we brought in Dave Blanco, we got Derek Shulman, and oh, he starts telling me all these things. I said, okay, I'll tell you, just send me the music and I'll see, you know, what it is. Right. And uh, so he sends me Nickelback the state. He had just signed them and he sent it to me, and I was like, I love it. I think it's great. I, I hear it. Uh, when are they playing? They end up playing. We were playing like that weekend or like a couple weekends later in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. So I uh, went up to Seattle, saw Oleander. They were going to show there and drove to Vancouver and uh, saw Nickelback play. It was like a daytime things, Plaza Nations. It was like for like an indie car race. Mm-hmm. And um, they were just awesome. That's, I mean, that's they just... Quick pause. So would it be within yeah. Ron's remit to say, Okay, there's a band here that we like, and we can offer them. Well, they can they can hook up a manager. Is that kind of like, yeah, that, so, that sort of the done thing? Yeah, so yeah, so Nickelback had had another manager at the time, or not at that time, but prior to that, and kind of I don't know what happened, but something happened, and they ended up dropping him, and were looking for other management. And Ron was kind of helping them through the process of finding managers, and he sent to a lot of managers, and people just were like, nah, I don't get it. It's a rock band on Roadrunner. I I don't get it. You know, um, they weren't a metal band, you know, and uh, but, uh, you know, so after I saw them, I was like, I'm in, I'm in guys. And, and a couple of weeks later, or sometime after they ended up doing a show with Creed and Ole- Oleander was opening for Creed and right. we put Nickelback on the bill and Nickelback went to Oleander like, hey, what's, how about this guy, Brian Coleman? Like, oh, we love him. He's great. He's a brother, blah, 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 blah. And so that kind of solidified everything. We've been together since, and that was 1999. So it's crazy. That's good crazy. run, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So you, so in terms of who who did the discovering, it was Ron. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure Ron found him. Ron's always been really good at that. He he's got a great ear to the ground. He he, he to this day. Now, if you probably know, he's at Mascot Records now. Yes. And yeah, and he he's great. He's so good at knowing what's going on where you know he's always been really good at that he's got a really good footprint of over here as well like kind of um americana sound which mascot's really good at has a really good foothold especially in sort of the radio crowds over here yeah Yeah, he's um he knows what he's doing i'm actually going over to amsterdam next week to film ed von sell from mascot Ooh, nice yeah yeah because he yeah because he works bertus which was the distribution company which yeah. then morphed into Roadrunner in those early days. So that should be pretty wild, I think. <laughs> yeah, it so, should be. Yeah. yeah. So when, um, and how long have you been managing at this point? So you said that was sorry, 98. Yeah, 99, 98, 99. Uh, I started like in 93, 92, right. 93. Yeah, so. You've been at it for a while. Yeah, I've been at it. I was like, I was going seeing. 10 bands a night every single night in LA you know right the LA scene wasn't as great in the 90s like in the 80s I was going to see shows when I was 13 years old I saw Motley Crue Metallica Slayer Met- I mean all those bands I saw early on before they were yeah. even you know nationwide interesting I was living on Sunset Boulevard pretty much from in my teen years and generationally it does actually kind of make sense if you're in LA in the 90s that there's no major grunge scene there, is it? There's all in Seattle and mimics elsewhere. So yeah. I guess that... that there was a good metal scene, like, you know, like Cold Chamber, Corn, Drown, all those bands um, yeah. that came from that area. And there, there were there was a lot of really good bands. It just uh, wasn't... At the time, grunge was, you know, the, the, the flavor of the week. 
Looking at your other bands, so I've I got Downer in there as well in default. Yeah. There's what I'd regard, and again, this I've got like a you lived it more than I did, so obviously my vocabulary is going to be a little bit immature. So it, it, yeah. I call this kind of there's a lot of like a post grunge aesthetic which moves into like a contemporary hard rock sound, which is what I think mm-hmm. kind of like isn't like the if we was to put an, put all those acts under an umbrella, there would be like a post grunge kind of sound there. Is it, were you a metal guy or was it kind of were you oh, yeah. more into trying to find this new emerging um landscape for where I these i've always are? just looked at artists that for you know for what i like who i think is going to be a career artist i don't you know yeah. look at what's popular now like i loved like the 80s metal stuff i was i was mm. i mean all those bands i went and saw the hair metal the the death metal in the 90s i liked you know everything from alice in chains to you know to the heavy stuff it just really kind of depends i wasn't looking for one particular thing it just whatever grabbed me and right. at the time you know when i first saw saliva it was in like 95 or 96 um they weren't really doing the rap rock thing it was mostly mostly straight up rock more like the cult more than mm-hmm. anything they influenced some some rapping in when they were making the record yeah um but you know and he was always a really good um rapper he gets there from memphis you know, they had a lot of that uh, Southern, um, you know, hip hop kind of feel with them. Yeah, you know, was automatic anyway. So that's just natural for them. Yeah. So how did you end up selling, or how did Blancar, how did Berman, how did yourself sell Roadrunner to the lads then? Because the most, I, 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 was there a lot of interest in Nickelback, and were you competing? I guess is another question. No, it's at the time they were. They had already signed to Roadrunner, so they were already there. So oh, one had already signed right. them. Yeah. So, yeah, so yeah. what for me it wasn't like a, I had to talk them into it. But I had to kind of navigate, okay, what are we going to do? But so at that point, I sat down with Lonco and, you know, and jo- well, Jonas was like GM at the time, and Derek, you know, um, and they laid out a plan, like, hey, we're going to radio. Like, we're going to, we want to break this at rock radio. And so we formulated a plan to go to rock radio, and you know, that's how we were going to build it. Interesting. And, yeah. I'm going to try and position this from Roadrunner's perspective because this is this is kind of like what I like about these interviews because I, I you could do it from the band's perspective all day but I'm doing it yeah. from a label's perspective because I'm sure. a fucking nerd. So it's interesting at this time because in the sort of mid to late '90s, K starts bringing in that um, mm-hmm. what I call major label credibility, which is sure. why Derek Shulman's brought in, which is why Dave Longcow's brought in. Yeah. And there's a there's a, a strategy that he even had like an MD level put in. In fact, that's what Derek was. He was like an MD level. And there was Jimmy Devlin in the UK. There was Lewis Spillman in Germany. Um, but the idea was kind of treat Roadrunner as a major in the same way that they had done previously, but really expand the roster and try and diversify a lot more. That's yeah, why in this it, period, yeah. we've got like rapid things like that being on Roadrunner. There's a lot of different licensing opportunities. Sinead O'Connor's on fucking you know, on a Roadrunner record in 2003. It's crazy. Yeah. But it, was that kind of the vibe going in? Did you get that that impression? Yeah, and I think that's kind of what, what Berman had brought to, to that label too, was kind of more of like the mainstream rock feel, not just the yeah. metal, you know. Um, and yeah, it was very, very... Uh, uh, poignant and and going that direction for that i mean they were still going to do the metal stuff you know they always they kept doing it you know to to the very end Mm. but they were um case had always wanted to have a a big rock band it was like his dream he loved having his label but he wanted to have at least an artist that he can go i did that 
you know, and I think he did it with Nickelback. You know, but it was, it was a great, it was, I mean, he, he saw the vision for it, you know, but then again, it's, it's still, you never know. Like, you know, the whole timing, the way it all kind of came out was really good because the state came out and we worked it. We worked hard. I mean, they did, the guys did every radio show, every radio station, every interview, everything they could. uh, And it did okay. It was top 10, maybe even top five leader, leader of men, the first single, second single, nothing, third single, nothing. But in Canada, they were still kind of building, but it really didn't take hold until after that. And, you know, that's when, uh, you know, when Chad kind of unlocked the box of how you remind me, then it all opened up. You know, that's a whole this is so interesting. There's two things you mentioned there, which is really poignant. First of all, it was uh, what Case wanted to do, which was like, if, if anyone if anyone's listening to this who's listened from the fucking start of this project early doors it might have even been everyone's L who said his goal was he just wanted to break one band onto the top of the u.s charts that's what he wanted to do and i'd yeah. completely forgotten about that until you just said that yeah that, yeah. that was like the that was, was the end. Come that, that, that was really it was nice to share that with case you know um case and i had a good relationship in a lot of ways but you know for us, it was like, we did this together. It was, it was really neat because for him, it was, it was a dream come true. And obviously mm-hmm. all the success around it, it's great for everybody, but it was, it was fun to see. It was a dream come true for me too. But I mean, it was, you know, for him to see him and what he had built, you know, you know, and we're talking about Roadrunner here, you know, for him to have that is uh, pretty special. The second thing as well, though, is yeah. I mean, it's something that I have to learn as a UK resident is the relationship the United States has with radio is a massive, massive deal. And if you think about the timing of um, you hit the state, you get leader of men, you get certain the second single, you get the other ones that weren't quite there. The fact that you were pushing it hard, I've learned through this process that pushing it hard for Roadrunner means an extensive radio campaign, which means Mark Abramson's out there making all those relationships. I don't know if Mark was back there. He wasn't even, he wasn't there yet, but, but, but there was a lot of radio people doing a lot of things uh, and spending a lot of money too. Let me, let me say that too. They spent a ton of money making it happen. Not like they were paying radio to get play, but paying for the band to be on the road because they were, you know, we, we, they were on tour like fuel and some other band, they got some other good tours, but you know, that's usually a lost leader when you're touring and they were losing money and, so the tour support really? comes in where the label helps the artists pay for the, the lopsidedness of touring and doing all the radio makes it go down even more. Mm. So, um, so it's just expensive. But w- my point was the footfall in the campaign, regardless of the success of the album itself, when Long Cow comes in with all the new relationships mm. and this great single, How You Remind Me, is kind of like the, the parting of the seas. Everything's kind of already open because you've already been on the phone with people for five fucking years. You know, yeah, we've been, you know, we had been working it and, you know, but I mean, that how you remind me was in a beast in itself. And we all knew it, like from the first listen, Chad called me right when he wrote it. You know, he's told us, you know, there's, there's a few, there's probably a handful of people where he was like, I got to call so-and-so. I got to call, you know, and play it. And I was like, okay, you know, through the years, we've never kind of used the H word, you know, like, this, this is not, you know, not a hit, it's yeah. not, you know, <laughs> you don't want to jinx it kind of thing. But I was like, sorry, that's a hit. And if, this, and if that doesn't go number one, I will stand on Jonas's desk and I will kick him in the face because it's going number one, I'm telling you. Uh, and, you know, it's just, that was that song. You just can do right from the start. So, yeah, so Lonka and I, we went out and started playing it for people um, pretty early on, you mm-hmm. know, just to, 
because we just we just like okay check this out yeah this is good we'll check check this out we just knew well we knew we had something special a lot of the times with the roadrunner band as well it's sometimes there's some fractured relationships because the band like the brit label to push things mm-hmm. and even if the state did well for what it was it wasn't like this super hit. I bet the lads were pretty reassured by the sheer amount of effort that was put in, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, and it was like everyone, it was all hands on deck. And that's why, you know, for all these years of success, some of my favorite times are like, it was like when, when that album finally went gold, it was yeah. like, you know, we have sold millions of records on, you know, on Silver Side Up and The Wrong Road and all the right reasons. But, but the state going gold was such a, huge moment all of us were like yes it went gold like, we worked so hard for that one you know like you work hard for all of them but that one was was a special because we really bled for that but it laid a lot of groundwork and they had a lot of good relationships at radio from doing all the you know it's not just radio but radio is a big part of it and you're yeah, right yeah. you know and radio is different nowadays than it used to be you know we're talking about you know this is in the 90s and 2000s radio was a huge part of an artist's uh you know career it's not as much anymore yeah i think it's a different conversation I'm really interested in like the the value of hits then versus hits now because I'd love to be able to have a, a big ch- spreadsheet of going okay well who's the hit makers these days who's hitting all the number one spots and I bet there's some labels which are churning them out who are just like okay may- maybe like this year's Warner's year of like number one singles but it's like if you compare that with 20 years ago it's a completely different story and maybe the priority is playlists on Spotify but neither of them are neither hits on radio no plays on Spotify are generating revenue. So what's the actual value here? You know right. what I mean? It, 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 yeah. that's, again, I mean, the actual value for an artist now is when they get out and tour and, and people are buying tickets and buying merch. You know, that, yeah. and that's that's kind of the the barometer. That's the dynamic. But yeah, I think the, I was trying to I was trying to just like tie that that stuff together in terms of the, the band sort of relationship with Roadrunner during this state run because it does bookend the why Roadrunner because that was the plan because there was some new blood in the company, which were there to accommodate this new sound that Roadrunner kind of wasn't yeah. too familiar with. Yeah. And what were your first impressions of Case then? Because were you expecting a then 50, nearly 60 year old Dutch opera fan to be spearheading this, this effort? Yeah, no. And, and he, he was, he's an enigma, you know, so it was hard to kind of figure out at first, you know, and then when they put Jonas as the, when Derek left and Jonas was the president, um, you know, Jonas and I always kind of clicked. We, you know, we, we had a lot of knockdown, drag out fights, but we always kind of came to the right conclusion for the right reason for which was what was best for the artist, you know? Mm. Um, but so it was mostly Jonas, the case was, was there, but the case was always wanted to be part of the major decisions, like first singles, you know, album timelines and those kinds of things. But, you know, no, no case was always a gentleman about, about everything. He, he had always been, you know, terrific. Um, but yeah, but it, it was hard to, at first, like, you know, especially when we started having to go in and renegotiate terms and stuff, but he was extremely, um, artist friendly, mm-hmm. um, to the guys always. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure. I'm, what was the deal like then? You don't have to share too many details. So I'm sure it's, it was a standard deal. <laughs> very standard uh independent that's the cool thing about roadrunner too is like they're like an independent like underdog and that's why i think it was good for nickelback being there too because they were able to be and become you know the priority there and if they were on another label they might have been dropped after the state didn't 
wasn't successful. This is it. You know, yeah. and a lot, a lot of places, and they, they've said this for years, and I, I agree 100%. A lot of places would have moved on. Mm, yeah. Yeah, definitely. This is this is the thing, isn't it? This is why I'm quite. This is why I'm entranced by. I think I used to use the term like papal enclave with Longcow, Shulman, um, yeah. and Jonas, like having this these this plan laid out and obviously hitting it hitting a home run with it because it's yeah. it's like it's not the natural order of things, and I think it's worth sort of pointing that out, especially as you just alluded to there. If it's not if it's not knocked out of the park the first time, the band typically gets dropped. Sure. But, were you privy to to all the things that were going on at Roadrunner at the time, like the arcade acquisition, the Edel situation? Not, not, not to that really. Really, there were, I knew there was a lot of things going on, but really, it kind of came in. You know, for me, it really affected Nickelback was when the Island Def Jam um, purchase was. You know, and I knew he he needed that at the time. He needed a saving, and you know, and and at that time, we also had. Uh, how you remind me we knew we had a great song and i told him i was like you got to find a partner that's gonna help take this to the next level because we're gonna need all the help we can get because this thing is an international smash let's try and let's try and unpack this a little bit then because when yeah. universal step into the room and it's not that it's worth noting that it's not the first time roadrun has been offered to like a purchase you know option or anything like that but there's a number of different steps that were taken before universal came to the table and my mm -hmm. understanding is universal came to the table for slipknot that was their thing no one kind of knew that how your mind was like the sleeper and civil side it was kind of the kind of a i told you have a funny leor story and then so, so this is kind of this is this is it so um you're right um and most people thought it was slipknot and rightfully so Slipknot, you know it, it taken off um much more than nickelback had but um, I was at Island Def Jam and at the offices and, you know, cause I managed saliva and they were, you know, we were getting things ready. Yeah. And uh, I hear over the, the PA, I didn't know they had a PA in the office of the PA. Uh, Leo Cohen, sa Cohen says, Brian Coleman, come to his office right away. you <laughs> being called to the principal's office, you know? So I'm like, all right, well, so I walk in and they're, they're playing Nickelback. They're like, Hey, we just closed the deal for, for Roadrunner. You need to just stay here and tell us everything you know about Roadrunner. And I was like, okay, this is great, but I have a flight. This is in New York and I lived in Texas, you know? And so I said, hey, that's great, but I got a flight. I got to head to the airport here in, in like 20 minutes. So I got to get going. He said, no, 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 You stay, I'll get you where you need to go. <laughs> okay. So we say, and the first thing is I said, I thought a lot of people think that you're gonna be doing this deal because of Slipknot. But let me tell you that they're great. I, I, you know, I get it. But this right here is going to cross over. I, I just, I feel that strong about it. And I think everybody does. And we, we played, listened to it. And I you know, kind of told them, you know, the story of working the state and everything. And so anyways, we're sitting there and kind of going through the, you know, the different things of Roadrunner. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I got like, my flight is leaving in an hour. And this is New York Friday. And traffic, you know, it takes two hours to get to the to the airport. He goes, yeah. okay, come on. So Lira grabs me. We run downstairs, run to his car, drive two blocks, hop in a helicopter, <laughs> and fly to LaGuardia. He lands me on the tarmac and goes, there's your gate right there. Have a nice weekend. And takes <laughs> off and goes to the Hamptons for the weekend. <laughs> Only Lira can do that. So That's it's just kind of funny because I was in the building when the deal went down that day. So it was, it, it was perfect timing. 
but yeah, in, you know, unlike Liz, Lior is the is a rock star, and that was that's my my Lior rock star story, which I just uh, so him. I'm trying to figure out when him and Case met. I had this theory that him and I are, are those two were, were already talking. I was talking to kind of in between them two, like okay, you guys need to get together, like get together, guys. You know, um, Lior was was really trying to break Island Def Jam. You know, Saliva was one of the first rock bands he signed there. And he's yeah. really trying to you know to build the rock side of the Island Def Jam. So um, buying Roadrunner or you know merging with Roadrunner was a huge uh, um, coup for that. Yeah, I mean, there's a number. Of, there's a number of reasons you'd go for it. It's independent credibility on a, on a different level, especially when the roster at that point was primarily death metal, and Slipknot was about to make death metal like a household fucking name. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Do you know if like? Do you know if the recently acquired knowledge about Nickelback? Do you think that made any difference to the negotiations, or do you think it was just we're about to go into this? We should probably learn a bit about the roster. Think, I think yeah. well, they, they knew, and, and I'm sure Case had already, you know, already played it. He just wanted to know more about, you know, from my perspective, mm. not being in, not working for Roadrunner, my perspective on the label at the time. But um, yeah, they, they, they knew perfectly well what they had. Yeah, awesome, awesome. The reason I'm interested in Case and Leo is because apparently they're just a match made in heaven. And I can oh, kind yeah. of see it. I, can say, I mean, like, obviously, I've never spoken to Leo. It's just been like podcasts and things like that. But they're two music guys, you know what I mean? Yeah, Doing uh, music things. I mean, it just makes sense. Both guys, I, I, I love them both. And they're both so different. You know, yeah. we complete 180 from each other. Um, but yeah, the, but together, it's magic, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's just take an aside very quickly just to... Um, um talk about some peripheral things so 604 what's the story behind 604 in my head in my head because i think all the records come out on 604 in canada and then we're licensed to roadrunner for the rest of the world i think that's how it was structured yeah so 604 is a is a label deal that um that chad and nickelback's attorney jonathan um put together as like a production company Jonathan, we, I had another couple of label situation with Sony and he's like, Hey, so you have a label. How does that work? We started talking about it. And so they just wanted to build because Chad was finding bands. He even found, you know, default, you know, which I, you know, I'll tell you that right. story, but I managed them and, you know, his theory of dead man. And all, there's, there were some other artists in Vancouver that he was finding. And he's just like, Hey, he wants to work. You know, when he come home from tour, he was already writing the next record. If, if it was right. already written, then he would he wanted to produce something else. He always he's just a workaholic. He's never stopped working. I but, thought uh, in, in my romantic head, I was thinking, all oh, right, Chad's Chad knows what he's sitting on with Nickelback in general. He's locking shit down from an IP perspective and from like a contractual perspective. He just wants to make sure that he's dealing with things appropriately. And but at the same time, you make a good point. He just wants the guy just likes music and he just wants to work. He's a workaholic, he's a machine that guy. I mean, you know, and that's just, he just wants to, he wanted to work. And the other guys went, you know, were married and you know, were building families. Mm. So come time to come home. Hey, we're taking some, every time they're like, we're taking six months off. Five days later, they're like, you're back in the studio, you know, but, but for the most part, you know, Chad was always, always working. He loved the idea of kind of helping other artists build up. Yeah. So him and Jonathan came, you know, made this, this label 604s, Canadian based, and it went through Roadrunner US 
and then Universal Worldwide. Now that I have a, it's a, it's a different deal now. That was, you know, 20 years ago. So it's yeah. a little different. Wild, wild. Yeah. So that's so great success. You know, Call Me Maybe was one, was, you know, yeah, kind of the yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, they've had a lot of success on there. Bonkers, man. Yeah. Maybe I should do a documentary on that instead. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> hey, uh, so when, when we move to Silver Side Up then. Yeah. Actually, your roster, are they getting jealous of the attention that Nickelback's getting? Or is, are they, is there any strain in that space? Um, yes, yeah, so, yeah, so, yeah, to be honest, yeah, saliva was a little bit uh, like, hey, wait a minute. And at this time, you know, um, you know, uh, we put Josie with Chad. And this was really a Leor thing. It was not, not a lot to do with it. It really was, was Leor, you know, with, with the Spider-Man song. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah. You know, you know with Hero. Putting Josie on there was really legal. was like, hey, Chad, I want you to do this. I didn't ask him to. You know, he's like, hey, your manager manages the same artist. And I said, listen, that's great. But I would, you know, if Chad didn't want it, I was going to, you know, push him on it, you know, mm -hmm. but he was totally happy to have him on there. And so they did that song. And, and then it should have propelled saliva a lot more. Unfortunately, those guys had some demons they had to deal with. And, yep. you know, um, so. So yeah, there was a little bit of you know, um, like hey, we're you know we're not as high as them. Although they sold a couple million records, they did great. Yeah, uh, it just, yeah. you know they were I think yeah a little bit, uh, you know at the time just kind of lost in in the midst of it. Yeah, but yeah, at the time I had Oleander, Nickelback, Saliva, and De and Default was a was an artist that that Chad found and produced. Um, mm -hmm. They didn't sign to sixty six oh four wasn't around yet. They signed to TBT Records. Right. Uh, and TVT was a little bit like uh, Roadrunner in a way, it was independent. Um, and uh, and you know they so one time I had like one, two, and three, and four. They're on the rock charts. And for a lot of that, you know, I had just moved from LA to Texas. I was working out of my house. I had no assistant. I was doing it all myself. Um, <laughs> you know, so it was a yeah, pretty pretty nutty time. That's wild. Downer as well as when I've got on my list. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Yeah, Downer. Um, I didn't work with him very long. Uh, we managed Bob Marlette and Bill Kennedy, who kind of worked with them. Right. Uh, and you know, we we just worked together for a short period of time. Because I was part of the research. Like my research running is I like go on to that's good site. research right there. That's not a you know well-known thing. I'll, I'll I'll share some stuff I found then. I found like a load of billboard ads with your name sort of on the bottom as part of the management. Wow, yeah, like, send me that stuff. I don't have that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know there's loads of like uh, Platinum Records being awarded and things like stuff with yeah. long hair with long hair. It's crazy. Oh, yeah. New long hair. Yeah. New with long hair. hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so actually, can you, one thing I didn't listen to my question, which was just a, a striking omission on my part. Can you talk, tell us the Spider-Man story then? Because I've heard not differing accounts, but it all seems to come together in kind of like this weird yeah uh so like gene pool of i think it was like a, a sony driven activity but they realized they didn't have the right kind of artists for what is meant to be a flagship single for a sam raimi directed you know superhero yeah. film so eventually yeah, but... they, they spread out and go oh actually you know what we could we've got this guy in our roster in the universal roster we could well know. we had the song because it was a song that chad wrote and frankly played it for the nickelback guys and they didn't like it Oh, so really? he's like, okay, well, I'm going to do this solo because I really like the song. He did a demo of it. And, you know, at some point he played it for Leor. And Leor was like, I love that song. I'm going to get that song placed. And, and you know, he did. I mean, you know, he went to, to Leah Volick, who was running Sony uh, 
uh, pictures at the Sony Music at the time, mm-hmm. and she loved it, and got everybody together, and that's you know when we got Josie in the song and all that. But um, it was really was Lior pitching it to Sony, and you know it, it was a great process. You know the song, the video, and we brought in Nigel Dick to direct the video. Nigel's done almost you know dozens of Nickelback videos. Um, it was a great experience. Um, and, but nobody knew it was going to be the kind of hit that it was, you know, that weekend I had Leah and like all these Sony people, everybody would call me, oh, this, this is the biggest opening weekend ever. Really? The, really? Okay, great. You know, it didn't, nobody knew it was going to be you know, as successful as it was. It does feel like Leo's really, really got his fucking pom poms out and he's championing. He does, yeah. He, you know he's I mean? great at that, you know. And he's this is this is pretty typical of him too. Like putting Josie in that song is that he does that with his artists, you know, kind of help artist one artist helps another, and that's worked for him for many years. I was speaking to Ray Garcia the other day, and um, he was pointing out that one of the really interesting things that a lot of artists do these days is always quite quick trigger finger singles that are put out it's usually artists featuring x and the, the collaboration sort of like network is quite vast in like the top singles category yeah. but rock and metal don't do that but you did <laughs> you did yeah, that 20 yeah. years ago you know yeah. what i mean yeah <laughs> no, it's it happened but it's happened less it's happened more and more recently with pop and country's great at it sure. too you know, I mean, a lot of times I say country nowadays is a lot what rock used to be, you know, or just going out and building fan bases and getting signed and getting radio play. It's kind of funny, but you're right. They're they're featuring other artists and it's helping other artists grow. It's great. Yeah, I think mean, it's about creating an ecosystem because ecosystems are usually genre packaged, like rock guys yeah. are rock guys and metal guys are metal guys and otherwise. But now it's like everything's so sad. I love the problem they cross over. I think it's even better. I love that. It's like a like a public enemy and anthrax, you know, like yeah. how cool is that, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, Ed Sheeran didn't bring me the horizon. That's in the latest. Yeah, one, there right? you go. See? Yeah. Um, so when the silver side up blows up, we've got this indie label that's just been just partially acquired by universal. Is there any kind of like stretch? Cause you're only, you're only a human. And then the Nickelback lads are only, you know, a set of guys. So is what, what's mobilizing around you infrastructurally is something stretching. Is, are we hiring more PR people over a roadrunner? Is there having to be some sort of dedicated? Oh, Nickelback absolutely. Is, oh, yeah, yeah. Is, is there like is there like dedicated Nickelback staff now at Roadrunner or otherwise? Maybe no, Union? there really wasn't a dedicated Nickelback staff. I mean, there was, um, you know, just like every label, you know, product manager and everything, you know. But but what was different for Nickelback probably was that the that Jonas had his hands really in a, a lot of it because it was really? you know the biggest thing on the label. So. But, you know, everything else was, uh, you know, that they had to build up, you know, and, and not just here, but worldwide. Well, tell me a little bit more about Jonas, especially his leadership style, because yeah. Jonas was there at the beginning of the New York office. He left for a while. I can't remember exactly where, but he recently, as at this time, he, he came back and he's, he really led the label through what I regard as my era when I started listening to metal. And yeah. so what the, the roadrunner that I see in my mind's eye is kind of like his, his, at least his contractual responsibility as president. So can you tell me a little bit about the guy and his, his, his particular leadership qualities? It's nice that he gets stuck in though. Same with Case. I know Case never gave anyone carte blanche. He always, yeah. whenever anyone's getting signed, he had to sign it off and things like that. And that's really cool. But yeah. I guess Jonas is getting a bit more 
he has a bit more of an operational functionality because he's the president and he's not case. Does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, and he's also, you know, case it wasn't case it was in Holland too, so he wasn't yeah. always in New York. So somebody, you know, kind of looking after the ship that was Jonas. But Jonas has got a great style because he's he's very collaborative, you know, um, and he he's got a great vision for what um, uh, what should be and for what the artist thinks it should be, and helping the artist. Uh, come to that and, and, and have that success or whatever they're looking to do helps them achieve that. Uh, he, and he's awesome. It's, you know, he, his, his musical background, like he clashes his favorite band. So he loves punk, but then you know, his favorite album is Boston. So he loves pop, you know, pop rock. So, um, you know, um, and then, you know, now he's working with Ghost. I mean, you know, and obviously all the, the bands that he worked with at Roadrunner, you know, kind of, did the whole gamut of, of rock from metal to yeah. pop. Yeah. Yeah. No, he's a, he's a good egg. I asked him the other day. Um, I actually sent out a bit of a mass email to the top brass and said, look guys, I'm kind of pulling this thing together. I need to understand typo negative had a particular green. Is there a particular road runner red? <laughs> Within five minutes, Jonas had assembled like an army of, of creative directors who could answer that question. It was it was awesome. amazing. It was absolutely he, amazing. You know, he's a great uh, general. You know, you know, kind of getting getting the soldiers to do what they got to do, and that and that's what Nickelback says to this day. Like, think about Roadrunner and the staff. You know, they got really close with a lot of people at the label, especially the radio reps being out there. And mm. but, um, you know, those those guys, the staff would run through a wall for you i mean yeah. and that was jonas going hey go get this go get the case too you know case was you know case would come in and he'd write a number on the window like three million and that was the goal before christmas you know to sell no. three million records before christmas but so but they they got those that staff to work hard and you know they loved it you know i think a lot a lot of it came from you know the the staff being music fans but yeah. also you know you get to when you get to know the artists and the you know and with my guys nickelback guys are genuine uh uh nice people you know who work hard and appreciate people working for them so that yeah. kind of that works really well you know with, especially with people going through walls for you you know i mean there's there's two things first of all the window you're referring to i believe was michael Cantor's office yep yep, yep. <laughs> you know about the window yeah Yes. Yeah. Um, who was it? I think it was Austin Stevens who was telling me that. Awesome. Um, yeah. <laughs> and, Mike, and Michael just being inside like, yep, three million. Can I get there? Yeah, yeah. No, no worries, mate. Um, yeah. Those days, Mike had a good job. <laughs> yeah. I um, Who else was I speaking to? Okay, so, so regarding earlier, I was mentioning um, the label expanding and bringing major level credibility. And this does come around to what you were saying. Um, this is where Derek came, Derek came in because he was an MD. Now, mm -hmm. regarding this particular exercise, um, adding the floor to having, have, adding a floor to the top of the building for someone to sit in, which in this case was Derek. And again, I mentioned Jimmy Devlin and things like that. The intention, as I say, was meant to try to corporatize, not corporatize, but trying to grant an air of, air of legitimacy to this death, death metal label, effectively. Sure. One person in this project has said, the issue with that was that the culture at that time was just too strong to penetrate. And that's something I think you were alluding to when you said you got all these guys who would run through a wall for you and you couldn't break that spirit. You couldn't, you couldn't right. mold it. That yeah. case already had the winning formula in front of him. It's just that it, it, they didn't have the home run yet. And obviously right. they got it with, with Nickelback and Slipknot. Yep. Do you agree with that statement? Do you think, or do you think it 100%. Might, might, 
hundred percent. I think you nailed it on the head. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And I, I love, I love that because the, that culture kind of cultivates that mentality too, you know, which I love. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have any runs with uh, Doug Keo? Oh yeah. Tell me about Doug. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it was, his was just mostly financial stuff. And then that, I mean, you know, and, and that's where managers and labels butt heads. So yeah, him and I, you know, we would go at it, but all good. Yeah, sure. He, he, I mean, okay. he, he was fighting hard for his, he was a good label guy and he was fighting hard for his label, for his guy. He was Case's guy. Yeah, I mean, you got to like, um, hopefully at the end of this process, the, what, the vision I'm trying to cultivate is kind of not an empathy for the label, but to understand that labels are just houses filled with people who want to make more music. And the mechanisms which they do that are sometimes a little bit cold, but sometimes it really mm. works. And it's just, a, it's, it's not a dirty industry. It's just a cold one, I think. Yeah. I don't know, that, yeah. that will hopefully... I know it can be dirty, but you know, it doesn't mean that, that it is, you know, yeah. that, that everyone is. Sometimes like the machinations of how, how resources are allocated and how people fit the budgets and things like that, that stuff I'm really interested in. And Doug's all, whenever I ask people that, cause you get very specific people on these, mm-hmm. on this podcast, um, I had Matt Poland on the other week who was like a product manager and, um, Doug's always at the table at those conversations. We've got, a, we've got this tour cycle. We're going to have X amount here. If we get to the end of the tour, then we're going to spend the rest on a video. And that's why the fourth single to every album is a UK tour video. <laughs> there's a reason for it all. And I'm absolutely sure. fascinated by it. Absolutely fascinated by it. Where Here's does- a funny tidbit. I don't know if you know this too, but you know, Corey Brennan, who you know is Slipknot's manager. Yeah. Uh, you know He was Nickelback's product manager on the state. Oh, no shit. Yeah, and Bob Johnson took over for him and was our product manager for many years. And he, Bob, ended up leaving going to work for Corey. Yeah, it was actually Matt again, Matt Bowman, who said, Corey, in this time, he was Roadrunner's only product manager. So everything yeah. went through him. So he was like, he was the guy with presumably like 97, 98, 99 um, like wall charts planning <laughs> everything out, just PMing the entire fucking show. It's just yeah. stressful as fuck. <laughs> absolutely from my perspective yeah so where did universal come into the day-to-day my, my understanding of, the, of this was well actually I'll tell you what, let's, let's, start, let's start that again a little bit so when universal come in is there any anxiety from your side because this yeah. this this pie that you just you just joined with road and everything the rug's just been pulled from under you right no, it was, it was wonderful. It was great because it was, it was more team. It was more help, especially yeah. when, when um, we started crossing from rock to pop, you know, uh, they didn't have the pop staff to work it to pop radio, you know, and there were a lot of pop stations playing how your mind way before they started working it. Cause they just, they thought it was a hit. So they were playing, yeah. you know? Um, so uh, <clears throat> really it was, it was an additional team to have, to really assist right. Roadrunner, you know, they were really good too. Cause they could have just taken over and said, don't talk to those guys. They were real um, respectful of Roadrunner and the Roadrunner staff in working with Nickelback. Right. And, they, okay. and we wanted it that way too, because we knew that the Roadrunner staff would run through a wall for you. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, did they ever get involved in any of the, any of the production processes as in Roadrunner themselves? You know, you, like Ron's not coming down to the studio and, Saying these hi hats are too loud, lads. No, if he did that, the guys would have been like, Ron, we <laughs> love you, but go, go sit in the corner, please. Um, now, Dave Rath, you know, if, if you probably, I don't know if you talked to Dave Rath. Um, um, we've re- recently connected. 
Okay, cool. Yeah, he, he's a great resource. Um, he was there. Actually, you want some good Spider-Man stories? He was there for all that, too. Really? Um, but uh, he was uh, a good part of, um, you know, the production process. But, you know, um, he was kind of more helping the mixer help the, the engineer with the mastering and that kind of stuff. But there was really the band, you know, they had other producers, but they ended up producing their own stuff. Yeah. You know, and, and, and at the, you know, at some point too, they just kind of knew just to leave the band alone, let them go make a record because they know what they're doing. Yes. Yes, I certainly do. <laughs> yeah. So when moving on then into, because we're in that, we're in a completely new world now. For, again, speaking from a roadrunner perspective, because mm -hmm. a, a good question at this point would be like, did you envisage this, this, this level of success with the band? And the answer is, of course you fucking did. You're their manager. You're the guy right. that, has to, that has to go, we're aiming for the stars, boys. Right. Roadrunner isn't used to a cycle of AAA bands and their balance sheet isn't used to, all oh, right, okay, Long Road's coming out followed by Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses. So 2003 and 2004 are going to be strong years. 2005, mm -hmm. we've got like this a plethora of like great underground metal acts as well, but we've also got all the right reasons coming up. So it's going to even yeah. look even better. It's new territory for them completely. Yeah. And that's why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, it's a struggle for me to articulate and understand the label's output and priorities because there's still a small team of people, right? Yeah. Still in, in comparison to other labels. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, at the same time, there's it's it's now got the major credibility that all that it, the case always wanted, mm -hmm. and there's still like the Mike Gitters and Monte Carlo's of the world coming up underneath with all these great like, like proper doing well, the, the metal. The good thing. thing about that though is that really it helped fund those things. You know, this is it. Um, yeah, yeah. It's kept the lights on, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it enabled them to hire more people to help build more things. You know, so yeah. a lot of the artists, I think that may not, you know, that for a lot of times may have gotten forgotten, got a lot of, maybe an extra chance because mm. there was extra funding there or additional staff that weren't there before. What I was a, a, about to arrive at was all the right reasons because in terms of numbers, we're looking 10 times, 12 times platinum by this point, I think by modern day. But here's the question. Was that the first number one that Roadrunner had? Album Silver Side Up was. It was a number Silver one Side album. Up was number one. Huh? When the number one album. Yeah. Silver Side oh. Up. Yeah. I always thought it was Slipknot. I always thought it was All Hope Was Gone. But I always thought. Slipknot could have been. I don't know. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It, it could the be. narrative I had in my head was, even though all these, all, all the Nickelback records and all the Slipknot records did really well, they never topped the album chart. This is, sorry, this is my perception. I, yeah. I need to actually look into it. And I thought All Hope Was Gone, that's in 2008, Slipknot, was like the, that's like the apex of like the commercial success story. That's like Case's last tick in the box. Yeah. For all the right reasons, it continued to sell. So my perception was, oh, it was like two, three, four, five, or whatever, but it kept going and going and going for years for, and years. For and years. three years. Yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, it, it stayed on, the, it stayed in the, in the top 50 or at least top 100 for a couple of years. Am I right in saying yeah. that this is like the momentum of the band delivering and then Rockstar was the sleeper single? Yep. And then brought yeah. it back in 2006, 2007, right? Yeah, seven, yeah. Can I, well, actually, we had not come out in 2008. Really? Yeah. This is as the, as the, either the tail end of eight or beginning or end of seven. I can't remember exactly when, but yeah. Yeah. On Rockstar, 
this is especially i don't know if this is a uk experience only but that was the thing that made me feel all right okay nickelback is like even though they've, played, they've been an arena act and they've been a platinum act up until this point this is the one where it was like all right we've now reached a point where nickelback's up there with the rest of like the pop acts right like in terms of like credibility and and, and sustainability and um you weren't gonna get they weren't just gonna fall over and go down you know what i mean and rockstar seven was, years of, of them being on on the radio and on tv a lot yeah you know, you know uh, and then, I mean, in that song, yeah, it, it broke out of the UK too. It, it, it's funny, it went to rock radio, and I don't even remember what year it was, I, at least a year and a half before that in the US and kind of bubbled up, didn't really do much, mm-hmm. um, you know, but really it was, yeah, it was the UK that it, where it popped. But that, I think that was, you know, that, that kind of song is a novelty kind of song. It was just a fun tongue in cheek song that they just, that they made, but it ended up being, uh, like a you know a novelty song where i think that's where people get the perception of oh yeah they're just uh you know they're one of those they're a pop act now you know it wasn't heavy guitars you know but it was you know, it was but it was, it was a fun time and and it, it, today probably to this day is still one of their most popular songs yeah and that, this is the thing that's really interesting to me. so let me let me dissect this a bit so it popped in the uk did it then get momentum in the us or was it was it always oh, yeah. right okay so it, it got so momentum we, in the us after uk absolutely that's so yeah. strange isn't it yeah. that's so weird was, yeah yeah totally totally and, and you can kind of when you listen to it it's like when you listen to the rest of that album as well there's a bunch of riff, there's a bunch of nickelback riffs across the board if you slow it down by 20 bpm it's a fucking stoner metal song you know what yeah. i mean it's but oh, yeah. in the album in particular there's a load of heavy shit on it so you when just you made say, Mike really happy, by the way. They, well, dude, it's, it's I'm, I'm Mike's I'm, a metalhead. Yeah, dude, I, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I am deadly serious. Like, yeah. it, it, I think this is part of the production arm, though, where we go, we got to, mm-hmm. we got to pick the tone, we got to pick the speed, and we've got to go. Right, where are we? Are we in stone and metal? Because that's where this could, you could easily, especially yeah. with Chad's voice, and if you right. detuned it like half a time. You're in a completely different space, which is why I think the sound's really diverse. But I'm not here to blow smoke up anyone's ass. I'm here to talk about the yeah, the no. Yeah, and if, I mean, you're right. I mean, then that's well, not going to say the intention, but that's you know they want everyone to be fans of them. Yeah, like, you know, like metal. Because how many times do a a biker dude is going to come up to chat and go, "Oh man, Far Away is my favorite song," and most of the girls like the heavy stuff. It's funny, like you know, but. Yeah. Um, you know, they want everybody to, you know, to, to like the music. And so that they're conscious of that when they're making it, but really they're making what they like, you know, they're, sure. you, know, you know, cause, and they, they come from metal. I mean, that's what, you know, they grew up going Metallica. Yeah, that, that Radio, was a Metallica yeah. tribute band, right? Yeah. So but yeah. my point was in the context of all the right reasons, which is a, like a, a, a through and through heavy record, you are right. Rockstar is a novelty song. I'm trying to find a different word other than novelty, but I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Um, and I'm just, I'm just like, I'm just trying to unpack and trying to revocabularize. I'm trying to recontextualize like how, what that song did. Um, because now I use the word it made them into a pop, like it cemented them as a pop act. What I really mean is it cemented them as a legacy artist in the sense of Aerosmith. Like Aerosmith won't go away even when the band members have gone. You know what I mean? Right. Nickelback's going to be the same. They're always going to be on that upper echelon on top of the sort of the pantheon of sort of, 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 of music acts in general. And I think yeah. that song is the one, it was the commercial mechanism to do it. I still like the band prior to and since because mm-hmm. it was a good rock band. 
but I think that's the song which made me go, all oh, right, it's this is now crossed over into into like um part of the furniture kind of conversation and like right. domesticated conversation. Now, sure. one thing because because it's because that song I'm perceiving that as quite a critical catalyst to that status making thing. I've got to ask when the song was being written, as you say, it was like a novelty one. Billy mm-hmm. Gibbons, I've seen a, like an interview with him where he was like when the song was in like in a premature state, he was just kicking back going, oh, to fucking hit. And then, then yeah. he comes in with the, so what you need. And that's yeah. what made it what it was. He, was, he, was doing, he was doing stuff on other songs. It wasn't really just for that song either. Right, okay. You know, they were just, you know, I mean, Chad was a huge Billy Gibbons fan. I mean, all the guys are mm-hmm. easy top fans. And they had him do some things. And that was something he started doing that. Like, we're going to put down the song, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and when he was writing the song, it was not like, oh, we're gonna make a novelty song. You know, it was that was not the intention. It was just a fun tongue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Song. You know, and at that I think you're right, and that that's where like it crossed over again. Like even I here in the states, we have CMT, which is a country. It's like MTV, but for country music. Even mm. they, it was the first rock really? thing they played. It wasn't country. Even they were playing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was just kind of one of those things where it's relatable and you know singable for everybody and that's probably where you kind of think okay now you had six seven years of a lot of hits mm-hmm. you know where okay they are they've reached that point you know they're where like you're right aerosmith you know uh, and a lot of those artists have gotten to, to that point i'm trying to blame billy gibbons for it that's what i was trying to <laughs> and you, you'll learn you'll learn it as, as we as we talk i like when i'm trying to like when i'm trying to broaden my understanding of my like my sort of horizons on it i do pontificate i do talk a lot around certain bits before i come in for the landing yeah. you know what I mean? but yeah it's 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 yeah it's batshit anyway yeah, you can't you can't blame billy for anything other than just appreciate him <laughs> yeah totally man do you see that documentary the um the little old band from texas I haven't, I haven't, I'll have to check it out. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. There's like, I think mm-hmm. it's one of those documentaries that has like a, 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 it has an artistic style to it where they say, haven't got footage. So they'll have like a little animation of the manager talking oh, to the band awesome. and stuff. But the B-roll is just them in a fucking, like in a hot rod, just going through some fields. And they clearly said, <laughs> right, lads, you're going to drive there for an hour. You're going to put sunglasses on and we're going to send drones around you. So anytime someone's just talking over something, it's just them in this glorious sort of like riding out into the sunset shop but no it's a good documentary it's a nice tidy 80 it. minutes as well we, we um, spent a little time with, you know, with with billy chad spent a lot of time with billy over the years um yeah. and he's i mean with other artists too and he's just just the real deal like just good down home <laughs> texas boy <laughs> how, how are you doing for time man I, i'm this, this i'm good time. yeah i'm good let's let's move onwards a little bit now because all the right reasons being this. Is there anything I'm missing from this period, by the way? I feel like I've skipped ahead a bit. Um, I'm trying to think. If you ask me something specific, I might, but I can't think of. There's nothing I can say. Well, this or that, especially about the label. Other, than, oh, I will say this actually mm. that you know this is when Roadrunner went from Island Def Jam to Warner. This is what I was going to move into. Correct. Yeah. Yes. So um still leo photo, so yeah photograph goes to radio and the out and all that reasons comes out in september mm-hmm. in december i remember getting a call from case she's like yeah we just moved the label to warner what we have an we have a single radio we have an out what what's going on and you know that's you know leo had gone over to warner and he brought it over there too and um 
It did, you know, it was a new team uh, and a new dynamic, you know, for the, for the label for sure. Why do you think Universal didn't pick up the option? Because that was the arrangement. Yeah, um, I think I think just I would say Lior. Right. <laughs> I think Lior had to back off. I'm, I'm taking him with me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think Lior like I, you know, Lior gets what he wants, so I think he got what he wanted. When um, this inter- is is an interesting story. Wally Van Mittendorf, who you may or may not remember. Um, he was uh, yeah. head of international yeah. after. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Apparently, I found the story is um, they all went out to dinner. I think it must have been in Amsterdam. And uh, Kay stood up and made an announcement saying, um, today I bought back Roadrunner from Universal and I was, I'm the independent owner again for five minutes before I turned around and sold it to all. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I didn't hear that. That's great. I love yeah. it. <laughs> um, so what, you mentioned a different dynamic. What's changed then? Because we came into the point where because the last question I'll ask, or one of the last questions will be, how did the relationship end? Um, and we can, I can speculate now and say, well, because, because sometimes things run their course and it's good to just move on and do other things. But if, instead of giving the answer, let's start this one relationship. Because I know from an admin perspective, things do change. Um, the makeup of the company changes. Um, slowly but surely, things start to move. People start to go Um mm-hmm paychecks don't have the little red logo the start having the the warner logo in and um again i'll preface it with what many other people have said which is you know this isn't like bad blood against warner this is just how things happen sometimes right but from your capacity as a manager having to compete the interests of the label which is now a much bigger conglomerate of or bigger Mm -hmm. bigger interest corporate interest from warner's side and balancing that interest with the band what's the dynamic shift for you and what are you observing from? Um, well, was, okay. I'd love to say it was it was different, but it really wasn't because at this point, Roadrunner was so self sufficient. Mm. You know, we are able to keep everything there. And with Leor, he took a lot of his people to Warner too. So it was yeah. a lot of the same people over at Warner, just you know, just a different building. There were some different people, and uh, and by this time, you know, Roadrunner had built up the label a lot. Um, yeah. And, but then there was some turnover too. Just, you know, people go through, you know, the, that's the nature of the business. You work somewhere for a few years and get a promotion somewhere else since so you go over there, you know? And um, so, you know, through that, you know, the, the cycle of, of different people coming through was, was there, but really, you know, the, what was consistent up until really here and now was Jonas, you know, he was there, you know, and, and Berman, you know, and Wrath, you know, um, we had, we had, you know, Lanco at, at this point left. So that changed a lot. You know, we had different radio people to kind of, to, to deal with, but really. So mentioning Lanco just wanted to leave and well, I think, he, I think he was, he moved house, hadn't he? He wanted a short <laughs> commute. That's why he left. He left. So, so funny thing about Lanco, <laughs> he, he's like, I'm, re- I'm out of here. I'm retiring. I'm like, no, you're not. He said, yes, I'm done. I'm out of here. I said, I give you three months. I give you three months. I'm going to call you in three months. And I'm going to hire you, I bet. He goes, nah. And so I, I, he goes to Florida. I wait three months. And I call him. He goes, please hire me. I'm bored to death. <laughs> so I hired him. <laughs> so, so Lanco kept working. He worked for, for, for me then from the management perspective. So he, he helped Nickelback. You know, he still to this day still does. That's crazy, man. Yeah. That's crazy. That's yeah. 15 years wanted to retire. No, <laughs> by this point, he wanted to have been retired. 
for 15 years, but no. Yeah, and and know what? He wanted to move. The cool thing is too is you know uh, he lived in Florida. He didn't want to move to New York or LA. Mm. And I was I'm in Texas, and we have I got you know people all over the place. And like we can work from wherever we are. Stay down in Florida. So he loved it. Yeah, yeah. So and feel free to go off record if you want. But when Berman got sacked and when Jonas got sacked, Mm -hmm. what was your initial? So like, did you do? Let's let me make this a bit more macro. Okay, I refer to this. This I say this. I refer to it. Ron, no, Rob Flynn from Machine Head coined this term. He calls this day the Red Wedding, as obviously an allusion to, to Game of Thrones and the fact that so many people went uh, um, as part of the, the full-on Warner acquisition. Um, did you sort of recognize this as like a oh shit, Rodrigo is closing offices and it's letting loads of people go. This is the end of like an era. This is the end of like a a, a a monolith of of rock and metal which was still growing in the sense of a, a conventional rock home for conventional rock mm-hmm. like you think about what what berman brought to the table in those last sort of five six years like blackstone yeah. cherry airborne theory was a little bit earlier but he, they were still going strong on the, that kind of brand did you sort of see it as like a oh shit yeah Again, the rug being pulled. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, and at that point, we knew that the label, that the band was going to be off the label soon too. You know, they, they, you know, rewind. And I won't go into the whole thing, but you know, um, through negotiating, we knew when the the deal was going to be up. So the deal was about to be up. So oh, the band okay. was going to be. They were going to be free agents and out of that system. You know, after that last after after that album. So. So you, you delivered the full term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's, the that term. was that yeah. was it. Okay, not a lot of bands do that. No, Deicide no. was the first one who delivered the full uh, <laughs> roadrunner contract. I wonder if they ever recouped. I think they did. I think I need to look at the maths on this. I think it's one of those where most bands don't make it that far. But if you make it that far, mm-hmm. and and I think you end up by the time you got to your seventh album, your first one's recouped so much. You're actually doing all right on it, like as in person. I don't know. I'm not. I'm gonna make. I don't want to make assertions. I need to sit down with an accountant. Yeah, that's gonna be interesting properly. to find out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair enough. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. So so yeah. It it was tough because there was a, a new new group and there were good people, like they're good staff, but but we knew the band was going to be somewhere. You know probably going to be somewhere else you know at least they're going to be free agents so we're going to test the market you know mm. soon enough anyway yeah yeah makes sense makes sense i mean i guess the building was mobilized in, in a different way um sure. yeah i think i think just move on anyway yeah and tim is there anything else i've missed off i've kind of like run through i did frantically find some more questions in the last five minutes and uh, before we, oh, we good. No, I, yeah i mean i i can't think of anything i i, I there's so many Leor case funny stories but um I, you know i don't even know which one to tell or maybe that's a different time you. anyway I, yeah i don't i don't know how i'd how i'd lead you as well i'm sure there's plenty but um you know we can save them for another time and you can always absolutely just yeah. yeah no you know like I, i'm so glad you're doing this because um those guys deserve a lot of respect you know f- um for what they what they built and you know the what they cultivated for a long time is a culture for a lot of people and, and i think a lot of the metal bands were like why is this band nickelback on the label you know and even we, we you know the band and i were kind of like like we knew it too i'm sorry you know like you know but but the staff is so good you know we love these guys you know <laughs> and the staff loved both as well 
Yeah, so interestingly, I heard this is something I read about 18 months ago, and then something Dave Lonkow told me to reaffirm it. And mm-hmm. then everyone else in the Rotor and Echelons told me I'm full of shit. But when there was an explosion of kind of like AAA hard rock um, talent coming out of the label, there was apparently talk of splitting the label into two and having two labels, Roadrunner Red and Roadrunner Blue. I, that, that sounds familiar. That sounds familiar. I, I wasn't aware of it. I mean, they didn't talk to me about that, but that makes sense. Yeah, if, yeah, if it seems familiar. Yeah, I need to find... No, the way I look at it, you know, it's, it's just music. It's just rock. Like, like I said, I like all kinds of rock. Yeah. Like all kinds of music, you know? And I think I think uh, Ace sits kind of, uh, kind of that way as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, again, like Jonas, like in The Clash in Boston. I mean, you know, um, it's just how, how we are. And you work with, if you're able to work with what you love, man, so you're hugely blessed.